A comprehensive history of Marx's thought would begin with Plato, but for the sake of ease, brevity, and the avoidance of straying too far beyond what there is of my expertise, I'm going to begin in the 18th century with the generalization that the dominant philosophical movement of this period, the Enlightenment, was an innovation in the sense that it took human society, man and nature, not according to a universal heavenly or divine standard mandated by church authorities, as would have been the established method up until that point, but according to the precepts of the scientific method, empiricism and reason. This method was significantly inspired by Newton's achievements in outlining the laws of motion, and this powered a new optimism about the capacity of human reason to dominate nature and improve or develop human life, with the consequence that the role of the church and hereditary institutions in social and political life was increasingly interrogated. We could debate the degree to which this represents a completely new system of thought or intellectual approach as such. It could be productive to trace its origins back to the period of cultural, social and political efflorescence known as the Renaissance, could be seen as the long-term consequences of the Reformation, or even the rediscovery of certain strands within Athenian philosophy. But insisting on a difference here is a way to underline the importance of the significant advancements in the natural sciences that we see in this period, particularly chemistry, which is important because it is the applied field most closely aligned with the requirements of industry, as well as the rising fortunes of its most outspoken advocates. The economically progressive class is most closely linked with production and trade, such as merchants, financiers, administrators, entrepreneurs, and the educated middle classes. So I may be making a serious mistake here in what follows, which is forcing you to wade through quite a lot of dense philosophical concepts which are not readily apprehensible in an audio format. So if you do get bored, I have put some of the timestamps in the notes. While there might have been strains within Enlightenment thought that made vague and simplistic declarations that all human beings are rational, and history is just a story of mankind becoming better, the critical tradition that Marx inherits considers some of the problematics around reason and interrogates not only the question as to whether human beings are rational, but how that rationality might function. And in providing an account of those philosophers who most meaningfully dealt with those ideas and their social consequences, I'm going to talk about Jean-Jacques Rousseau, David Hume and Immanuel Kant. One of Rousseau's key ideas is that man is inherently virtuous and was once identical with himself. His relationship with the world was at one stage not conditioned or mediated. Fellowship with others developed spontaneously, didn't require any institutions in order to preserve it. Now, there's a turning point at some stage when human beings begin to live together in larger communities. Competition for natural resources and sexual partners leads to an insecure situation of all against all, which facilitates mass consent to the establishment of legal authority which enshrines unequal and exploitative social relations in the state, which is now guided by the common interests of the rich and the propertied, as well as an imposition of a condition of unfreedom on the poor and the weak. As we cannot return to this state of nature, the best that we can do is enter into relationships of mutual solidarity and educate one another in this spirit as well. Hume would say that this separation is an authentic reflection of an actually existing distance between what empiricists, natural scientists, would regard as the source of all knowledge, the senses, and some hypothesized natural order. Any notion that there are definite connections between disparate sets of experiences, which we could use to, say, predict what's going to happen in the future, are just post facto rationalizations which we ourselves impose. There's no physical or moral order, no set of transcendent values over and above what we can divine from experience. The universe, humanity, has no purpose. It just is, or they just are. Kant would have rejected Hume's notion that reason invalidated 
a spiritual or universal order. He made the case for a metaphysics abstracted from direct experience. And perhaps we cannot find the order of nature through through our senses, but what makes experience itself possible are pure or a priori concepts which structure our cognition. Without the infrastructure of the unifying force of the intellect, there's no perception that can happen in the first place. The sovereignty that reason possesses over nature is indicated by the active exertion of our mind and intellectual activity. And this sovereignty is partial. In sensual perception, we passively undergo the effects of objects, but both the active and the passive are necessary. The human mind constantly strives to achieve the unity of absolute knowledge, but this is impossible. We cannot arrive at a final unity between ourselves and the world by doing away with this contingency to achieve knowledge of God, the soul, or the universe. Our theoretical knowledge can never extend beyond the empirical world to absolute realities, just as the variety of experience cannot be wholly subordinated to the power of the intellect. So that division between nature and freedom, desire and duty, the passive existence of contingent things, and an active existence in which contingency disappears is curable, but only in a situation of infinite progress. That achievement of this final destination, God, perfection, freedom, the destruction of contingency within the absolute, this is an unlimited striving. In this teleology, with autonomous human reason being the final end of nature, is Kant's means of rendering science consistent with moral law, the belief in God and immortality. Newton gave us a set of principles or laws governing the sensible world which are a priori because they do not depend on sensibility. So we can align these principles of perfection with knowledge of the world that we derive through our senses using the former as exemplars in further measurements of it. So both sensibility and understanding work together in cognition, which align with the a priori forms supplied by our cognitive faculties. These rules supply the general framework in which the sensible world and all the objects or phenomena in it appear to us. But, and just to underline this, we cannot have a priori knowledge about things whose existence and nature are entirely independent of the human mind, and Kant refers to these as things in themselves. Kant restricts science to the realm of appearances and therefore implies that a transcendent metaphysics, i.e. a priori knowledge of things in themselves, transcending possible human experience, is impossible. Human beings experience only appearances, not things in themselves, which are real in the sense that they would exist and have properties even if no human beings were around to perceive them, while appearances are not in that sense. Therefore, the determinism and empiricism of modern science is cordoned off from traditional morality. It doesn't threaten it anymore. Science, confined to appearance, um, and the soul or the self can be located in the realm of things in themselves. So to sum up again, for those who had the sense to dip out of the prehistory, looked at in highly simplified and overall terms, the problem Kant is dealing with is a classic one that anyone familiar with any disciplinary background or field would be familiar with. The struggle between contingency versus determination or foreclosure, the concrete versus the abstract, the particular versus the universal, uh, the world versus forms of intellect. Either the mind struggles with the manifold nature of existence and is overwhelmed by contingency or the endless succession of events, or experience is subordinated to mind, and we lose what's distinct about it. Now, Kant had figured out a way to harmonise the two, but the problem was he examined the nature of our cognitive powers first, with things in themselves providing structure, and then used them to get to content, not, not getting to being until reason had already set the parameters. In this way, he effectively relegated mind to a secondary position by arguing that it is operating only in the realm of appearance. Things in themselves are granted more importance. 
Hegel's contribution was to do what Kant did without relegating content to the same extent. According to Hegel, finite reason cannot exist to define the bounds of its own validity before it exists. Man and the absolute are not on the opposite sides of cognition. Mind is a process that relates itself to the absolute as it develops. Contingency only comes in in instances where that development is actually not happening. This works as follows. A limited consciousness of an individual, say, is finite, and it perceives an object as something outside of itself, as alien to it. These two are synthesized with one another by the object's alienness being overcome when the subject perceives itself in the object. In this way, the subject frees itself from the limitations that the object imposes on it. Unlike the process we see in Kant, this is not based on the dismissal of the created universe as a form of appearance that we can expect to evaporate into the unity of the absolute somewhere down the line. Hegel preserves that manifold aspect by having the object persist as it passes away, and sublation is the term that we use in order to refer to this negation, which also preserves, safeguarding the independence of mind and the manifoldness of being at the same time. And in this way, the variety of being ceases to be accidental. It can be envisioned as part of a logical process of development. Christian philosophers struggled with the apprehensible fact of the finite world while talking about the self-sufficiency of the absolute. And I suppose Kant did too. Hegel solves this by saying that mind is not only the first principle, but it is the only reality, and in order for it to move in the direction of the absolute, it must participate in a process of continual mediation and self-differentiation, by objectifying itself in seemingly finite forms, which are re-assimilated by being de-objectivized. At each successive stage, mind proceeds by self-negation, but the values persist. They're absorbed and they're perpetuated into a higher phase, combating mind's own imperfection mind is its own truth. It preserves at the end of the journey all the accumulated wealth of knowledge that it has gathered in getting to where it is. Another angle to approach this from is to think about it from the point of view of the relationship between the part and the whole. Meaning can only be understood in relation to the complete process of mind. The knowledge of any part of the universe is significant only insofar as it can relate to the whole history of being. The truth of every individual entity within that process is in its progressive conformity to the concept of itself, which is finally identical with knowledge of itself. This isn't a mere casual conformity, such as the coincidence of two realities that we might be comparing from the outside. This conformity is the identity of a subject with the concept of itself. It is a final instance in which the being of mind is the same thing as knowledge of that being. These patterns of mutual recognition constitute the social matrix within which Individual self-consciousnesses, self-consciousness plural, can exist as such. And this is how Hegel moves from subjective mind, the individual, to objective spirit, which is a culturally distinct set of patterns of social interaction. One example Hegel provides is Stoic philosophy, which held that spiritual freedom exists outside of external conditions. And freedom has to be sought by rejecting the world of appearance and residing exclusively within subjective thought. Thought, therefore, withdraws into itself. In declaring itself indifferent to natural existence, it gives up on the attempt to assimilate the object. And this, as well as the sceptics, who take this further in denying the existence of anything outside of one's own mind, is the opposite of self-identity. This is consciousness in, uh, in sort of a condition of bad faith, for lack of a better term. It is caught between awareness both of itself as an autonomous being, as well as a contingent one, but it cleaves to the former while rejecting the latter. This divided state is typified also in Christianity and Judaism because within these structures of belief, 
the subject is confronted by the otherworldly being of God, in which it beholds itself, but in opposition to God's immutability. It acknowledges its own contingency relative to the divine, but it cannot recognize its own individuality as something contained within God's universality. Acts of devotion can posit that relation and play its part in the development of reason, and further down the line, presumably, rational philosophy. History, therefore, is not contingent. The collision of individual or group interests produce results which may appear to be irrational or accidental, but they play their part independently of intention in a process of evolution. They are instruments of the wisdom of history expressed over the long term. All forms of civilization, law, the state, art, religion, philosophy have their place in the movement of mind towards freedom, which uses actions motivated by private designs for its own purposes. This is why it's not intelligible if we look at through a merely psychological or subjective lens. The forms of mind retain their integrity through an historical framework that Hegel provides, which encompasses the whole development of mind over time, most concretely the history of human civilization on a journey towards the absolute. This is where we start to see the germ of Marxism, not just the historical succession of specific modes of being, but the notion that consciousness can develop hierarchically, moving from pure consciousness to absolute knowledge by way of self-awareness. That knowledge, again, fulfills the purpose of the world, which is the same thing as knowledge of the world. It is difficult to say whether this system is becoming more and more correct as it goes, whether the task of a single reasoning individual is to pay attention and determine what is valid in the moment going forward or not. I think it's correct to say that Hegel is not necessarily advancing normative judgments, but is just trying to understand mind in its struggle to attain higher and higher stages of freedom. For Hegel's more radical interpreters, the hope was that the developmental theory at the heart of his ideology would be actualized in the real world, that anachronistic institutions would be steadily undermined and bring the state into conformity with the precepts of reason, basically a bourgeois egalitarian state with a constitutional monarchy, the abolition of feudal estates, public office being open to all, freedom of speech, property and association. It might seem self-evident that a philosophy proclaiming the principle of universal negativism, that every successive phase of history is the basis of its own destruction, would not recognise any state, religion or philosophy as final, but in the years immediately after Hegel's death it was in fact perfectly compatible with the ideology of the Prussian state. The authorities filled university positions with Hegelians because in his work Elements of the Philosophy of Right it is suggested that the ethical whole within which the individual can realise their freedom, is the state. And you could see how Hegel could be read from the right, from a quietest perspective. Progress can come from the individual making subjective demands on the state. The individual should realise their individuality by being sublated into it. This changes in the mid-30s when it becomes clear that there was a radical component to his thought, and the most active of his disciples held views which were antithetical to the continued existence of the Prussio-Christian monarchy. Their appeals were met with repressive measures, particularly after 1840, when Friedrich William IV further curtailed political freedom and religious tolerance. Karl Marx was born in 1818 in Trier, a town that had, after the Napoleonic Wars, passed from France's ownership into Prussia's. Under the French Revolution, some restrictions on Jews had been relaxed, and Marx's father was able to make a successful career as a lawyer. But when the Prussians expelled Napoleon, it became illegal once again for Jews to hold office, and he changed his name to Heinrich, had his family baptised as Christians, and in doing so, rose to the head of the Trier Bar. This was not a source of any particular angst for him, though there were a number of rabbis going back through the family tree. He himself was quite secular, 
He was present at an incident which took place at the Trier Casino Society in 1834 when a demonstration in support of the values represented by the French Revolution broke out spontaneously. A tricolour was produced and the man who the authorities regarded as central to the event was put on trial for treason. Marx's father actually bolted it out of there when it became clear what was happening, um, but it can be safely assumed that he would have held liberal and reforming views. Marx was sent to study law in Bonn, where he fell in with a circle of Hegelian radicals. He got his doctorate, he became close to a professor named Bruno Bauer, who promised him a post, but Bauer was ultimately dismissed from his position for his pro-constitutional and atheistic views. Marx started to write for a liberal newspaper, the Rhenish Zeitung in Cologne, which is the centre of the industrialised Rhineland. It was supported by wealthy manufacturers and merchants in the area who found that their trade and their political power was restricted from the, by the Prussian state, but it fell foul of the censors. This forced Marx to move with his wife, Jenny von Westphalen, to Paris. In his critique of Hegel's philosophy of right, Marx criticised Hegel for taking real subjects, finite human individuals, as mere predicates of a universal substance, and seeing individual man as a subjective or secondary form of existence subordinate to the state. Marx inverts this order. He argues that the state should have no value independent of its obligation to serve the needs of actually existing individuals. The movement towards freedom should be the movement towards democracy, the reshaping of the state as an instrument of man in order to endow humanity with the capacity to de-alienate its institutions. Hegel would have regarded the state's officials as embodying the spirit of the state and, in that sense, above the will of discrete individuals. But for Marx, this was painfully discredited by what the actually existing Prussian state looked like. Marx does accept Hegel's distinction between two separate spheres of contemporary life, civil society versus the political state. And civil society is the totality of divergent interests, both individual and collective, in empirical daily life, with its conflicts and disputes in which every citizen every day exists. However, they are also participants in the state, and Hegel believed that it is in the state that all these conflicts and disparately pursued interests are mediated and rationally synthesised. Marx argues this is an illusion, a synthesis between these two is not possible as long as the state is a tool of particular interests. Man as a citizen is different from man as a private person, but only the private person belonging to civil society possesses a real, concrete existence. As a citizen, he is part of an abstract creation, the state to which he is ultimately subordinate. And to anticipate slightly where this thread would ultimately lead him, modern capitalist society has introduced a dualism between a citizen's private capacity and their status as a political subject as a worker, alienated from their labour, being impoverished both individually and collectively. The worker's relationship to his own conditions of existence is completely tied up with the wage relation, which is fundamentally exploitative. Marx's perspective on a revolution that would overthrow the existing order is not, therefore, that this would violate the rational core of the Prussian state and interrupt its developmental course, but rather that this would be a fulfilment of its innate destiny, Rather than adhering to the left Hegelian view that intellectuals could stand outside of society, develop a vision of a harmonious social order and present it to the masses after the fact, the new social system would have to be the product of a protracted working class struggle for liberation that would, because the working class is the most immiserated and oppressed social group, liberate mankind as a whole. When Marx is first theorising socialism, he is partly working within an existing tradition. Pre-Marxian socialism arises under the combined influence of industrialization and the French Revolution. Intuitions among the intelligentsia that an uncontrolled concentration of wealth lead to larger and larger crises which inflict increasing misery upon the masses. The dominant economic and political social system 
so this logic goes, should be replaced by one in which the organization of production and exchange could do away with poverty and bring about a redistribution of the Earth's goods on the basis of equality. One prior antecedent could be seen as arising in the aftermath of the Reformation with the German Peasant Rebellion. Um, an important leader here would be the Protestant preacher Thomas Munzer, the organization of peasants across the country in demanding the abolition of serfdom, the reduction of taxes, legal rights, and democratization of the clergy. Martin Luther rejected the more generalized anti-clerical aims of the rebellion, denounced Munzer as a tool of Satan, and urged the German princes to crush the rebellion. But in thinking of more modern antecedents, we should bring it back to the French Revolution. Apart from Britain, which had a bourgeois revolution in the 17th century, as well as a few smaller states, absolute monarchies ruled across Europe. They received their right to do so from God, they headed hierarchies of landed nobles, and were backed up also by the church. The requirements to wage war and to maintain international rivalries had put an onus on monarchs to curb the more anarchic tendencies of their nobles and to fill the state apparatus with non-aristocratic civil servants, which had also led some of them to attempt programs of economic, social, administrative and intellectual forms of modernization, more out of the need to acquire prestige, money and competitive advantage than a commitment to enlightenment ideals. In any case, this initially led the educated class and those looking to progress through the central apparatus to look to an enlightened monarch as a means of realizing their hopes. Um, but ultimately, the monarchs did opt for alliance with the landed nobility against the bourgeoisie. Having said that, there were very few European monarchs who didn't recognize the need to abolish feudalism in the years leading up to the French Revolution. Those which were attempted failed because of the extent of political resistance. This is a struggle of the town against the country, industry against landed property, the money economy against the natural economy. As industry, commerce develops, the bourgeoisie is constantly growing, and as this happens, the crown is increasingly likely to seek to insulate its privileges and arbitrary authority by seeking the aid of a retrograde nobility, and then, in its truculence, unleash bourgeois revolutions. This is what happened in England, this is what happened in France. The particular spark comes as a consequence of the Crown's need to build up depleted state revenues in the aftermath of the military engagements the French undertook against the Brits in the American Revolution, which had, together with general Crown expenditure, nearly bankrupted the Exchequer. A class predominantly consisting of educated entrepreneurs, lawyers, administrators and teachers, steeped to varying extents in the writings of thinkers such as Kant, Rousseau, Diderot and Voltaire, known as the Third Estate, and this was a title that stood in comparison to the clergy and aristocracy, which made up the first and second estates, respectively, refused to grant the crown additional fundraising powers until absolutism had been reformed and that they could achieve extensions to their own privileges. Most of them were lawyers who played an important role in the economy of the provinces, about a hundred were capitalists and businessmen. Finding themselves spurned by the nobility, they constituted themselves a separate assembly with the right to put together a constitution which abolished absolutism. The Third Estate were not led by a single party or set of men trying to initiate a particular program. It did not consolidate around any leader or set of leaders. Its momentum was secured by a very coherent social group, the bourgeoisie, with a relative consensus in terms of what they wanted. Classical liberalism, laissez-faire, freedom of association, speech, as propagated, debated and discussed in informal associations, coffee houses as laid out in the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizens. This document set itself against a hierarchical society of noble privilege, but it was not really an egalitarian document. It represented private property as a sacred right, 
the assemblies it called for were not necessarily democratic, and the society it might lead to would not necessarily be without a monarch either. It was perfectly compatible with a propertied oligarchy. It was doubtful that they would have succeeded if it wasn't for the support that they gained from the labouring poor in the cities, as well as the peasantry in the countryside that was becoming increasingly revolutionary. The nobility, which crowded out provincial and central administrative positions, were abusing the feudal rights they had to squeeze the peasantry, which comprised 80% of the population in the form of rent increases. The vast majority of peasants didn't have sufficient landholding, they were technically backward, and only a select number could benefit from elevated prices for agricultural produce due to the increasing population. These feudal Jews and taxes were going to ease into their income alongside inflation of bread prices due to the bad harvest of the previous year. Rather than resorting to mere bread riots, a political consciousness around these issues, which was further sharpened by the resistance of the old regime, prompted them to take up arms in defence of the revolution's new institutions. However, apart from the sale and division of church lands, the policies enacted by the Constituent Assembly in place from 1789 to 1791 did not satisfy the majority of people. It resisted calls for further extension of democracy, restricting the franchise to a vote based on the possession of property. This, as well as the royal family's attempt to flee the country, fluctuating food prices, war motivated both by a moderate faction seeking to distract from domestic failures, by uniting opposition against the foreign enemy, uh, legitimate internationalist commitments to the spread of liberty, economic benefits which arise from economic profiteering, and the feudal regimes of Europe seeking to restore the old regime, safeguarding against its spread, made republicanism the mass line, and uh, increased the space that existed for a more radical left faction, the Jacobins, which were originally a group of Breton deputies, and so-called because they took up residence in the convent of the Jacobins, which was the nickname given to the Dominican order in France. Their social base was among the labouring poor, as well as the petty bourgeoisie, uh, craftsmen, shopkeepers and artisans. And they were organised in local political clubs and formulated a policy which combined a commitment to small private property, a hostility to the rich, the basics of a state-provided welfare such as government, guaranteed work, wages, social security, and an extreme libertarian form of direct democracy. The Jacobins came to power in 1792, with these radicals then split again into more moderate Girondists and the Mountain, which was headed by Robespierre and Jean-Paul Marat. An escalating crisis regarding the failure of the war effort, the price of bread, and the mass mobilisation the war made necessary, Growing demands for an ideological crusade across Europe, again, shrunk the ground from beneath the feet of the moderates, and the mountain took power in a coup. In considering some of the Jacobins' achievements, they introduced the first genuinely democratic constitution, they abolished all feudal rights without indemnity, improved the chances of the small buyer to acquire emigre land, they abolished slavery in the French colonies, and pledged that the aim of the government was the welfare of its citizens. In anticipation of the discussion of the revolution that this series is ostensibly devoted to considering, the reign of terror is can be presented as an attempt to prevent the bankrupt state from collapsing, with 60 out of the 80 departments across France in revolt, and the Germans and the Brits invading simultaneously. If we accept that this was the choice, then success was achieved for at least a couple of years. The invaders were repelled, the army, tripled in size, was run at half the cost, inflation was gotten under control. It certainly had its successes, 
not least the cult of the supreme being. As that meme goes, everybody hated that. In further anticipation of the revolution being dealt with later, the class alliance on which this government was based between the middle classes and the laborers was extremely fragile. And what came afterwards by way of restoration was arguably worse. The financiers and merchants in the directory had no popular support. The liberatory aspects of the revolution very much went into abeyance and their liberalisation of the economy was undertaken with a view to profiteering off war, war supplies and inflating the price of food while people died of hunger in the streets. The Directory also had to depend on the army in order to suppress opposition to such an extent that it became a key pillar of the state and of course produced the revolution's last leader. Krakas Babuf was a clerk when the revolution broke out and he was present at the storming of the Bastille. He threw himself into the process of revolution, organising people against paying certain taxes, expropriating large estates, and assisting in apportioning them out to poor farmers, getting himself imprisoned by local landlords until he got a post in the Bureau of Subsistence of the Commune, though he was purged from this position after he criticised the authorities for deliberately producing a famine in order to drive the price of food up. When Babeuf got out of prison, he founded a political club called the Society of the Equals to oppose the policies of the Directory. Babup's political philosophy represented an extension of that of Rousseau and the Jacobins, regarding the French Revolution as the prelude to another greater and final revolution which would abolish private property as the root of all inequality. Napoleon himself made the organisation illegal, but they continued to organise themselves, writing a constitution that mandated, among other things, take care of all children from birth, equal education for all, for the necessities of life to be supplied by the government, and a state monopoly on foreign trade. This society would be instituted by overthrowing the existing one via conspiracy because the masses were not yet liberated from the spiritual influence of the exploiting classes. Babeuf and his followers would therefore hold power for them until education had become universal and they could take the administration of society into their own hands. Babeuf's conspiracy was discovered before the coup could take place, however, and he was executed. Another pre-Marxian socialist named Robert Owen was the son of a Welsh saddle maker and he had also worked as a draper's clerk. At the age of 20 he was in charge of a cotton factory in Manchester with 500 workers under him. He was an enthusiastic adopter of new forms of machinery but he noted that they tended to further degrade rather than enhance working conditions for labourers. Having little interest in the liberal politics of his own time, dismissing the existing political parties, he preferred to lead by example in the creation of a new human subject cultivated through improvements to their environment, through universal education and social improvement. In doing so, he took possession of a cotton mill in Scotland, notable for the unreliability and drunkenness of its workforce, as well as dependence on child labour, and children as young as five being shipped in from orphanages. Owen introduced reduced working hours, paid wages above the prevailing market rate, which were guaranteed even during times of economic slowdown or crisis. He also limited the returns to his partners and invested the surplus in community improvements. His work was successful in raising working conditions and productivity, but ultimately the system depended on him to too great an extent, and it didn't represent a replicable model. He found other industrialists to be uncooperative, greedy, and uninterested in strengthening the hand of labour, and gave up on trying to promote his work in Europe, when a bill opposing child labour was successfully watered down by the cotton lobby in Parliament, recognising now that the state had been captured by the interests of the exploiters. He then began to attack what he now saw were the true sources of exploitation, religion and property, and in doing so he very quickly alienated the support he had acquired from these quarters that he had built up when his activities could be regarded as merely philanthropic experiments. Owen took over the town of New Harmony in Indiana from a German religious sect to found a communist colony there, but the open invitation to all comers led to a lot of shysters seeking to take advantage coming through, 
and ultimately Owen's partner scammed him out of his investments. Don't know if you can hear that helicopter, it's the guards trying to stop me from recording these lectures. The emphasis Marx gave to the working class in his early writings was more of a philosophical or moral position than a conclusion he had arrived at by observation. It preceded his knowledge of and contact with the labour movement or workers' associations. And this changed when he met Friedrich Engels, the son of a factory owner from the industrial town of Barman. If Marx's political critique arose from Hegel, Engels began with concrete, historical and empirical actuality. Having seen for himself the social consequences of industrial production after he was sent off to England to observe the running of the family business. It is therefore through Engels that Marx first comes into contact with political economists such as Adam Smith, John Stuart Mill, Ricardo, and Sismondi, and begins to research matters like the nature of wages, profit, ground rent, and value. The notion that the value of an article should be measured by the amount of labour that went into it begins with Adam Smith, whose works are devoted to the increase of national wealth and how it can be measured independently of fluctuations in price. Smith assumed that the increase in wealth was desirable, and he sought to prove that state intervention in production and trade could only impede its growth. In this way, Smith regarded the unregulated distribution of profits between capitalist landowners and workers as being in accordance with the natural order. Smith was the first to arrive at a complete set of categories applicable to the analysis of economic activity, on the basis that it follows a logic which is independent of human volition, regulated by what he called the invisible hand of the market. One of the key shortcomings of these ideas from both Marx and Engels' perspective was that they were being presented as though they were immutable social and economic laws, whereas in fact they were not only historically determined, but also functioned as self-interested rationalisations of the motives behind a social system that valued nothing higher than private property. Free trade and competition did not open up to greater conditions of freedom or generalise wealth. In fact, it consolidated bourgeois monopolies and enslaved the working class on larger and larger scales leaving their conditions of existence subject to the whims of the market, the contradictions of the capitalist system, periodic crises caused by overproduction, private property and its accumulation necessarily led to antagonism because the owners of private property, by endeavouring to prolong and extend their own, their own holdings, creates its own antagonism in the form of the proletariat. Capitalists might try to escape from these crises by reducing the value of or destroying a mass of productive forces, as in warfare, or seeking new markets in colonial ventures, but in so doing they paved the way for more serious and extensive crises further down the line. In this way, independently of its own ends, the property-owning class destroys itself due to the dehumanisation it visits upon its necessary opposite, which becomes increasingly conscious of itself as this process of immiseration goes on. The victorious proletariat does not merely reverse the situation and make itself the new possessors, but rather eliminates itself and its own opposition simultaneously. This is a viable exit from the capitalist mode of production for a very specific reason. For a certain amount of the working day, a labourer is earning their own wages, but once the worker has theoretically manufactured enough sheets of linen, which they could buy back with their wages, any further value being generated is recouped by the capitalist without paying for it in the form of a surplus. It is precisely because of this surplus, this accumulation over and above whatever the capitalist has spent on wages that Marx is interested in the working class in the first place. This class as a whole confronts this method of surplus extraction as a mechanism through which they are exploited and will continue to be exploited on a larger and larger scale. The capitalist therefore subsists on the work of others and there is therefore no reason why he could not be eliminated from the equation and allow the worker to produce sufficient linen not to the end of producing luxury curtains for a rich family or clothe an imperial standing army 
but take textile production as an industry from those profiting from its relative scarcity and fulfill the social requirements of society at large, to clothe as many people as might need clothing. Having achieved, or at least having in view, its bourgeois revolution, Europe now needed a proletarian revolution to usher in a social order of authentic freedom, finally overthrowing private property, the vice that feudalism and capitalism both held in common. Marx's capacity to ground these economic concepts within the philosophical humanism of the left Hegelians, albeit with actual historical and social content, is what allowed him to bring this logical formulation into material shape. Though he never used the term himself, the method of socio-economic determinism being outlined here is dialectical or historical materialism, which argues that the history of human civilization must be studied in connection with the history of industry and exchange, because producing its way of life out of material conditions and productive activity is how social relations between subjects within social formations develop, and this is what distinguishes them from the animal kingdom. Our humanness is dictated by what we produce and how we do so. In the Communist Manifesto, Marx argues that feudalism and capitalism are squaring off against each other in Germany and across Europe. There is still a struggle between two competing ways in which society may be organised, a cold, rational and calculating capitalism, the aspiration of the property to strengthen their hand against the monarchs and the church, um, against an unenlightened, backwards, superstitious and religious feudalism. Marx never wrote a comprehensive account of the transition from tribal ownership in prehistory to communal and state property and antiquity to feudalism, characterised by lands being divided into estates, craft production, and finally Marx's epoch and our own industrial capitalism. We're limited to short, slightly impressionistic, but very vivid and convincing accounts which come through in parts of Capital, the Grundriss, and other shorter works. Writers coming in his wake have filled in the gaps, which has left it an enormously complicated and highly academic subject, so I'm going to try to keep things as simplified and as polycausal as I possibly can. Under feudalism, commodities are mostly produced by artisans in workshops that they own and live in. This is specialised handicraft. It is learned on a controlled basis, there are barriers to entry, each master would have a certain number of apprentices, and they are often members of representative associations called guilds. The development of a merchant class, which is to come towards the late stages of feudalism in the early modern period, is stimulated to a large extent by increasingly dense maritime networks of trade, which used colonial power to plunder the modern-day Philippines, Borneo, New Guinea and Indonesia, uh, rob precious metals mined in Latin America, export these commodities to Europe and Africa, where these and other European goods are used to buy slaves for growing plantation systems in the Caribbean islands, northern Brazil, and the southern United States, where forced laborers, slaves, work on large estates or plantations, exporting sugar, tobacco, textiles, salt, wine, and as industry kicks into gear, becomes fundamental to the Western European economy, cotton in vaster and vaster quantities, transforming them from luxury products into articles of more common consumption. This demand for cotton incentivizes its production in places such as India, where it runs down the quality of the soil and destroys sustainable forms of indigenous agriculture. This leads to famines in which millions and millions of people are killed. The capital accumulation that all this activity made possible benefited the mercantile communities of Europe to such an extent that it allowed them to concentrate production by bringing together a number of producers and machines on one premises. Industrial expansion was also driven 
by the domestic putting out system, in which the merchant bought the products of the handicraftsmen or the non-agricultural outputs of the peasantry for sale in a wider market. The growth of this system, as well as the decline in fuel rents, administer a fatal shock to its broader economic foundations, forcing people living off their agricultural surplus into factories to earn their wages by selling their labour power to a capitalist entrepreneur. England is the first place in which agriculture becomes fully capitalist. Land ownership was highly concentrated, leading to a class of agricultural entrepreneurs with a large agrarian proletariat underneath them. A long period of demographic expansion encouraged and required agricultural improvement, and this further stimulated population growth. This happened in England because its early revolution had cleared the way for profit-making to become the supreme value in government policy. Agriculture had become fully capitalist by being concentrated in the hands of commercially-minded landlords, a long period of demographic expansion and the growth of manufacture throughout the countryside encouraged the raising of productivity through improvement to feed the non-agricultural population. This all further stimulated population growth. So the British peasantry was gone at a time when the French, German or Russian had not. A considerable volume of the fixed capital overheads for industry was already being created in shipping, port facilities improvements to roads and waterways. The cotton trade was so lucrative that the barriers to entry in the form of the necessary fixed capital investments were by comparison absolutely minuscule. The spinning jenny and other technologies were very cheap and it also got you access to overseas export markets. The profits available here pulled in a lot of merchant entrepreneurs into industrial production and victory in the Napoleonic Wars had eliminated any competition in the maritime trade networks which allowed Bristol, Glasgow and Liverpool to become major colonial ports. In this way, I hope to have demonstrated that it makes no sense to speak of capitalism and the Industrial Revolution as something that happens in England. That this far stronger, modern form of social domination, which is far more sustainable than the one based on landed property, small-scale agricultural and handicraft production that preceded it, has predicates and consequences far beyond Western Europe and is intricately tied up with imperialism and with state coercion. Now... In certain respects, this trajectory simplifies the events themselves. It threatens to omit differing tendencies and competing factions whose particular interests did not always tend in this one single direction. And also, I'm sure that there are certain deformities arising out of this account by the requirements of compressing particular details. However, like Marx's abstract model of capitalism, in which there are workers generating surplus on one end, capitalists recouping profits from the sale of that surplus on the other, the succession of one mode of production by another allows us to understand what is taking place behind the epiphenomena, the logic behind the events, if they can be said to have any, and we can take this model and incorporate more concrete historical data regarding major or minor deviations from it according to context. This was the central difference between Marx's conception of socialism and that of other socialists or social reformers at the time. Marx's attention is focused on the material reality of capitalism, predicting its development on the basis of its internal contradictions, understanding how the class character of society creates objective barriers and how those barriers might be overcome. Utopian socialists made more vague appeals to a universal brotherhood of humanity, calling for popular uprisings of labourers to the end of an effective return to social relations under feudalism, in which the individual craftsman might roll back the deleterious effects of industrialization. And Marx knew that it is only through industry that a future of material abundance could be achieved and that a return to a pre-industrial past is not only reactionary but impossible. The competitive pressures of the market from which industrial capitalism emerges cannot be wished away but must be transcended. 
and in this way a bourgeois revolution was a necessary precondition for the establishment of socialism. And the process by which people were alienated from their small holdings, the means by which they obtained their material sustenance, was a brutal and a traumatic process. Capitalism comes into existence, as he wrote, quote, dripping from head to foot from every pore with blood and dirt. Any transfer of class power is likely to be similarly disruptive, and therefore socialism is to be achieved not through parliamentary majorities or constructing communes outside of market relations to try to replace it incrementally, as some of his predecessors argued, but through struggle, organising, forming unions as well as social democratic parties and international organisations in which socialist parties of each nation can meet, discuss and coordinate the formation of multiple fronts against the bourgeoisie. In order for the proletariat to expropriate those who expropriated them, a few things have to happen. First, the state of servitude has to become intolerable. A critical mass must be deprived of their possessions, be left only with their labour power to sell, and have to become opposed to the existing order. Technical development also has to have reached a certain stage. Communism in a premature state would lead only to a generalised poverty, and a society composed of individuals with no ability to flourish in the way that those in a productive, industrialised nation could. The revolution must also be worldwide. Communism can only come about when the world is a single market and all countries are economically interdependent. So the proletariat has to exist as a global force and struggle simultaneously in all advanced countries. In 1848, there was a severe depression in Europe that came in the aftermath of a railway boom. The revolution broke out across the continent, the restored French monarch Louis-Philippe was toppled and a French Republic was declared. It also broke out in Italy, the German states, most of the Habsburg Empire and Switzerland. It also affected Spain, Denmark, Romania, to a lesser extent again, Ireland, Greece and Britain. Virtually every person of education would have sympathised with the objectives of the French Revolution, up until the Jacobin dictatorship, although often for a lot longer past this point. Across Europe, there would have been Jacobin clubs that discussed and organised within the limits of political freedom in their own jurisdictions, to the extent that counter-revolutionary powers were, in the aftermath of his defeat, to a certain extent resigned to the irreversibility of the French Revolution, and were ready to negotiate and admit France into the sphere of diplomacy, though they were a little bit more loath to do so after he came back a second time. In any case, Napoleon's conquest left a persisting legacy of institutional change across Germany, Belgium, the Netherlands, Italy, Spain and Poland. In a lot of these places, the institutions of the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Empire were applied or became the intuitive model for local administration. They helped introduce paper money, government bonds, the sophisticated financial mechanisms which were necessary to finance and organise the war, and this obviously strengthened financial institutions and deepened their ties to the state. The frontiers might have been rolled back, but feudalism was not re-established anywhere. Under the post-Napoleonic restoration, there would have been little distinction drawn between those sections of the opposition which were Bonapartist and those which were committed to, say, anarchism. Even though they had little in common, for the representatives of the old powers, they were regarded as the same, and this lack of space for political opposition of any form creates a situation in which a common front within which liberal reformers of the upper middle class and liberal aristocracy could struggle alongside socialists and small manufacturers under pressure from industrial production and big capital. 1848 does not mark the point at which that common front breaks down completely. You need to adjust that statement in the cases of Ireland or Germany and maybe even a few others, 
but it certainly marks the point at which a radical socialist left were beginning to make themselves felt as an autonomous mass force. And this means that a pattern which played out a number of times in the course of the French Revolution, whereby moderate reformers would mobilise the masses against counter-revolution, the masses would push beyond their moderate aims to their own social revolution, prompting the moderates to try and rein them in, and when that doesn't work, making common cause with reaction to suppress them, repeats itself because... Another thing that characterises this period is liberal reform moving within sight of government, if not loyal opposition again, with the exception of Prussia. The 1848 revolution leaves little else by way of a legacy, and an important factor here is the relative inexperience of the radical left in organising. The labour movement in England consisted of Chartists, which had arisen out of dissatisfaction with the 1882 Reform Act. It also consisted of Owenites and revolutionary syndicalists, which were all suppressed very quickly by employers in the state. Socialists were reduced to propaganda circles or education groups outside of the mainstream of the labour movement or very modest cooperatives. In France, no comparable mass movement of the industrial labouring poor existed. Working class activism was limited to skilled trades and centres of traditional domestic production. Some socialists did come out to the barricades, but lacked organisational experience given the limited space available for limited agitation. The fundamental devices of mass politics were only rarely possible, which is why the conspiratorial revolutionary method inherited from the Jacobins and Babeuf looms so large, both organisationally and ideologically, in blankism. The German League of the Outlaws, which became the League of the Just and then the Communist League after Marx and Engels took it over in 1847, was run by expatriate German journeymen, and it originated in the same conspiratorial tradition. In the course of the revolution, Marx helped to draft an address to be sent to the French provisional government. He also contributed to buy arms for Belgian workers, which got him expelled by the authorities, and went to Paris to establish a new headquarters for the Communist League. Marx and Engels returned to Cologne, where a branch of the Communist League was organising a series of petitions for reform. The Prussians, under pressure, granted a national assembly. Marx waged a factional struggle against a butcher named Gottschalk, who argued the Communists should boycott this assembly while printing, publishing and writing for the Neue Rhenish Zeitung newspaper. He was taken to court for inciting the people not to pay their taxes, defended himself and got off, but was still deported. Engels, too, exposed himself to prosecution for inciting the Frankfurt Assembly to resist attempts to disarm it, and when martial law was declared in September, was charged with high treason. He fled to Barman and then to Brussels, but was deported to France. Engels also took part in a few armed engagements in Freiburg, attempting to prevent the government from surrendering to the Prussians, only to find that the government had fled before they could get there to Another important figure here to mention in the context of the 1848 revolution is Mikhail Alexandrovich Bakunin, who was born to an aristocratic family in Tver in Russia during the reign of Nicholas I. He was 11 years old at the time of the Decemberist uprising, an upper-class conspiracy of officers in which his parents played an important role. And its failure prompted the desire to introduce harsh censorship and make it more difficult for Russians to circulate between Russia and Europe in an attempt to clamp down on the spread of westernising ideas. Bakunin spent some years in Moscow as a Hegelian conservative, committed to the idea of the impersonal progress of history, then moved to Europe in 1840, coming into contact with Marx, Engels, Wilhelm Weitling and Pierre-Joseph Proudhon, the French anarcho-socialist who Marx wrote scathing dismissals of, arguing, not completely unfairly, that he represented the interests of the petty bourgeois manufacturing class and not the growing industrial masses. Bakunin was actively involved in revolutionary struggle in Paris during the July days, tried to provoke the Poles into revolt, believing that the liberation of Russia could only happen through a generalised pan-Slavic revolution, 
but finding the Poles to be suspicious of him, he took part in an unsuccessful uprising in Prague. In Dresden, he took to the barricades, advising the provisional government to fortify the city against Prussian troops, but the commander of the revolutionary forces, who may have been a traitor, in fact obstructed the defence of the city. When Saxon and Prussian troops came together to crush the rebellion, Bakunin was expelled to Russia, where he spent 12 years in prison and exile. He escaped from Siberia to Japan and made his way to London via America. The International Working Men's Association was founded at a public meeting in London in September 1864. The organisational links on which it depended had been formed the previous year between British and French trade unionists on the occasion of demonstrations in support of the Polish insurrection against Russia. The meeting was also attended by German, Italian and Polish emigres, and its objective was to create an international body which could coordinate working class struggle across different countries. A general council of 34 members was elected, with George Odger, a London trade unionist, as president. Marx was also elected to the council and made corresponding secretary for Germany. He played an important role in drafting the rules and inaugural address, which described briefly the fortunes of the European working class since 1848, declaring that as property had been increasingly concentrated, the proletariat had become increasingly impoverished. Though successes had been made inside the cooperative movement and in campaigns for the reduction of working hours, further progress depended on the working class conquering political power, which could only be achieved by international action undertaken by the working class, whose interests were independent of country or nationality. During the next few years, the international had moderate success in organising sections in Belgium, France and Switzerland, generally on the basis of existing organisations. However, the international was never in a position to impose discipline and thereby ensure conformity with its resolutions. British unions often followed their own policies. The French were mostly prudonists who expressed their disagreements with Marx, objecting to, for example, Marx's arguments that Polish independence was crucial to the cause of European workers. Marx and Bakunin clashed during the 1848 revolution after an article in the Neue Rhenische Zeitung accused Bakunin of being a Tsarist agent, a charge which the newspaper did subsequently withdraw. In September 1868, Bakunin established an anarchist group, the International Alliance of Democratic Socialists, which was refused in its application to join the International unless it dissolved itself and joined as an individual section. Bakunin publicly complied but never dropped the secret society structure really. He set up branches in Italy and Spain and got a strong grip on working class organisations in French Switzerland where the International was due to hold its 1869 Congress, during which he was in control of 12 out of 74 delegates during a debate on the question of whether or not laws of inheritance should be abolished. Bakunin supported this motion, while Marx's arguments rejecting it were based on the idea that inheritance was only a symptom of a broader problem, and while Bakunin's motion was defeated, Marx's corresponding amendment lost by a larger majority. From this point on, Marx and Bakunin engaged in highly personalised political conflict, with Marx trying his best to convince others that Bakunin was in the international for his own personal gains, and he consequently became very paranoid that Bakunin was secretly orchestrating every occasion his motions faced any kind of internal opposition. Bakunin was highly motivated by a highly messianic brand of anarchism and was less accustomed to situations which required calculation, manoeuvre or alliances, which isn't that different from Marx really. He's found his social agents among the more deprived sections of the working class, the lumpen proletariat and the peasantry. He regarded Marxian socialism as being oriented towards a labour aristocracy, whereas his paupers, or as he called them, bandits, had nothing to lose from any change in the social order. His doctrine was oriented around the notion of obtaining freedom against the state, which he did not regard in the same class terms as Marx did. He saw wealth as just one more means through which the state was aggrandised. 
He also believed Marx's system left no room for the individual will, and in this sense his anarchism was largely defined negatively, with a huge number of proliferating subgroups, their chief common ground being that humans left their own inclinations could form harmonious communities. The root of all social misery lay in impersonal institutions such as the state. Marx believed that socialism would restore man's individual life in all its fullness and replace those autonomous political organisations which offered sham forms of community with the direct association of individuals, but he also argued that a return to an organic community could not consist in the mere liquidation of existing institutional forms, but rather the reorganisation of civil society on the basis of the technique and organisation of labour created under capitalism. The state as an instrument of coercion would become superfluous, but not the centralised administration of material resources and production. These would persist with the socialization of, pro of property, preventing the socialist state from degenerating into an apparatus of violence. Anarchists regarded this Marxist vision of a future democratic state as a contradiction in terms, and also opposed reformist measures such as lobbying for an eight-hour day or higher wages, since concessions such as these made the existing order more stable. Marx and Engels' writings on the state proposed that it is an instrument of coercion developed in defence of particular class interests. On that basis, its existence depends on class divisions already having arisen within the society in question. It arises out of the breakdown of democratic forms of tribal society, with the need to mobilise force to control slaves or serfs, and continually enforce the rights of acquired wealth and privilege against communist traditions of earlier societies, ensuring the accumulation of private wealth can continue unhindered. At the same time, the state is not eternal. Its coercive aspects are transient features of human civilization, which will disappear with the abolition of class differences, and the exercise of political power will no longer be part of the state's function. The state as an instrument of coercion will become superfluous, but not as a means of centrally administering material resources and production. These would persist with the socialization of property preventing the socialist state from degenerating into an apparatus of violence. All these autonomous political organizations granted to us in liberal bourgeois capitalist society, which offer sham forms of democracy and community, would be replaced by the direct association of individuals, which would restore man's individual life in all its fullness, but this return to an organic community cannot consist in the mere liquidation of existing institutional forms. Rather, civil society would have to be reorganised on the basis of the technique and organisation of labour created under capitalism. Anarchists regarded the Marxist version of a future democratic state, as outlined here, as a contradiction in terms, and tactically opposed reformist measures such as lobbying, for an eight-hour day or higher wages, since concessions such as these made the existing order more stable. Marx had to wage internal struggles against anarchists in order to maintain the worth of achieving these reforms, as well as against blankets in the international and similar ground due to the emphasis they placed on direct action and immediate maximalist aims. The first time Marx was provided with a concrete instance against which theories of proletarian revolution might be tested, came with the Paris Commune. The Commune anticipated many of the revolutions which take place during the following century, in that it occurred due to the French state's participation in a disastrous war effort against the Prussians brought about by an incompetent monarch, whose idiocy Marx had diagnosed in the 18th Brumaire of Louis Napoleon. Napoleon's capture led to the establishment of a moderate republican government in Paris, led by the liberal Adolphe Thiers. Blanqui was given a small post as commander of a battalion in the National Guard. 
When Metz fell to the Prussians, Blanqui demanded the arming of the whole adult population of Paris, but the bourgeois government, now afraid of working-class revolt, suppressed them and signed an armistice with the Germans, agreeing to the surrender of Alsace-Lorraine and the payment of an enormous indemnity. The National Assembly, which met at Bordeaux, committed itself to a crushing programme of raising money to pay off the Germans before proceeding to internal reforms, which put an end to the moratorium on debts, the suspension of requirements to pay rents, and cut off the salaries of the National Guard. Socialist journalists and agitators, such as Louis-Charles de la Close, began to gain popularity for denouncing the government for their incompetence. There was starvation in Paris due to poor allocation of food. Officers became increasingly perturbed as army units ordered to fire on crowds instead of fraternise with the masses, and the provisional government set out to disarm them. These manoeuvres led to officers being arrested or shot, the construction of barricades, and large parts of the city being placed under the effective control of a new self-organised regime in opposition to Thiers. The government fled to Versailles, about 20 kilometres outside the city, and a central committee was formed which abolished the police and the army, with the people assuming their duties, expropriated the clergy, made all public offices elective, capped their salaries at a maximum of 6,000 francs, granted freedom of the press, public meetings and association, as well as the expropriation of articles of primary necessity and their allocation according to need. The leaders of the commune were primarily Blancus. Marx's influence was outweighed by that of the Prudonis, and in addition to these tendencies, there was a significant number of opportunists, which led to a vagueness of aims and a proneness to grandiose declarations over practical action. One of the most significant of these was the commune's seemingly principled refusal to seize money in the Parisian bank vaults. As participant observer of the commune, Prosper Olivier Lizagare wrote, quote, while abolishing their budget of public worship, which was at Versailles, they bent their knees to the budget of the bourgeoisie, which was at their mercy. Another failure Lizagari identifies was delaying a march on the government in Versailles for three weeks, which gave Thiers time to prepare a regular army, which was able to crush the ill-prepared, under-equipped and undisciplined forces of the commune in a week-long campaign. 100,000 were killed, imprisoned or exiled. The extent of the commune's internal divisions, its concerns with emphasising its legitimacy, rendered it unable to maintain itself over the long term. Though the influence of Marx's thought was minimal, and only very few committed Marxists were participants, Marx understood the importance of the Commune following and documenting its progress over the weeks it unfolded. He did so not just because it made his name notorious throughout Europe, as he noted with some satisfaction in his correspondence, he was being cited in the reactionary press as its prime orchestrator, but because of the innovative nature of its civic and legislative assemblies, with elected representatives subject to instant recall if they violated the popular will. These institutions, constructed from below, represented as far as he was concerned the future historical and political development of humanity. Marx wrote The Civil War in France in order to extract lessons from the Commune for the benefit of the international as well as future socialist movements. And in this work, we find elaborations on Marx's theories of the state, with its military, police and bureaucracy, which first developed under feudalism, transformed over time into an instrument for enforcing the interests of the bourgeois capitalist class. The future of a society led by a proletarian government did not lie in taking control of this instrument in the expectation that it could be bent to progressive ends, but rather in smashing it. The political superstructure is an apparatus of coercion, cannot be reformed in such a way as to begin serving the interests of the exploited class. It must be destroyed by revolutionary violence, and this was something that Marx realised after the Paris Commune. During the period that the victorious working class is fighting the exploiters, it must possess its own means of coercion, which will be an instrument for the majority for the first time in history. This is the concept of the dictatorship of the proletariat. The proletariat will use force without concealment for the purpose of abolishing class. In 1917, Vladimir Lenin, in exile from a provisional government under pressure from the proletariat and peasantry, was to return to this work and elaborate on it for the purposes of the working class in Russia, as well as the European broadly in the state of the revolution. 